Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's conversation on the big and important stories in the region. The United States vetoed another United Nations Security Council draft resolution today calling for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Hopes of a temporary pause in the conflict that has claimed almost 30,000 lives have been crushed anew. Most of the Palestinian victims are women and children. Israel says it will mount a ground invasion in the southernmost city of Rafah in Gaza, where an estimated 1.4 million Palestinians have sought refuge unless Hamas releases more than 100 Israeli hostages. The conflict began when Hamas mounted a surprise attack on Israel on October 7th, slaughtering some 1,200 Israelis in a single day. The situation in Gaza is dire, and above all, for the tens of thousands of children who are caught in the middle. Seema Jelani is a rare American doctor who was able to travel to the Gaza Strip and treat children there with the International Rescue Committee in partnership with Medical Aid for Palestinians. The scenes the paediatrician encountered were the most nightmarish and the most inhumane and cruel things she'll ever see, she says. Jelani has just returned from Washington, where she met with senior Biden administration officials to relay the horrors of the conflict. I managed to catch her today. Welcome to On the Middle East, Seema, and thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me. Seema, you've been in Gaza, and that was back in December, and things have just gotten progressively worse, of course. Could you kindly just bring us up to date with the situation, particularly with regard to medical care in Gaza? Yes, I worked as a pediatrician in one of the last enduring emergency rooms in central Gaza, Al-Aqsa Hospital, with an emergency medical team for the International Rescue Committee and Medical Aid for Palestinians. Um Within the two weeks that I was there, I witnessed a semi-functional hospital uh, go from a semi-functional hospital to an absolutely non-functional, chaotic, and very hectic emergency room due to the lack of supplies and uh, people being unable to reach the the hospital itself, um, both patients and doctors. And I imagine that's only been exacerbated in the South, in Rafa, where... Um, Several, you know, hundred uh, thousands of one point two million civilians have now collected and been forcibly displaced. And there's a hospital there, uh, one of the biggest, right? That's currently under attack from Israeli forces, the Nasser Medical Complex. That's correct. That's my understanding. Yes. And so, what are you hearing from your colleagues on the ground? Do you have any colleagues on the ground? Um, my colleagues don't, haven't worked in Nasser Hospital. I have colleagues I'm in touch with from Al-Aqsa Hospital. They reported um, that following uh, the, uh, the Israeli authorities' uh, leafleting surrounding areas close to Al-Aqsa Hospital and uh, declaring them as red zones, that people were, uh, were evacuating in panic. About a week after I left, approximately, I believe the fuel had run out um, and uh, people, the, the emergency room looked unrecognizable from when I was there, which was a packed, robust emergency room bustling with all sorts of, um, you know, 
mass casualty and trauma. Um, and then about a week later, people had evacuated. And my understanding is now um, they are trying to continue to stand it up. Um, doctors who have themselves been forcibly displaced, showing up to work um, valiantly and trying to serve their communities. And a lot of these doctors, of course, losing loved ones, immediate family members, perhaps even being uh, injured themselves, right? Indeed, indeed. Um, there was one morning where we were in the doctor's area, a tiny little doctor's room, and there was a, a nurse sort of quietly sobbing in the in the corner, um, a gentleman. And I was wondering what to do. It's such a challenging situation. And so we just asked, should, should we leave? What's happened? How can we support you? And he explained that he had pronounced a colleague dead overnight um, and was just reflecting on that and trying to mourn. And I said, well, should would you prefer if we leave? And he said, no, I can't see my patients right now. I can't face them. Can you just go see my patients for me? Um, and so we were, of course, honored that we would be able to fulfill that need um, and do something uh, to to comfort him at that time, because it was a very grave time for him, of course. You've been in many other conflict zones. How would you say this compares? I mean, it's just reading your descriptions uh, in other publications. I, I, I don't I can't even bring myself to, to, to repeat those or to even asked you ask you to repeat those thinking that mm. this must be so traumatizing for you but would you just help our audience explain what what it looks like there could you just tell us a bit more about the the, the challenges really especially mm. as a pediatrician seeing so many children uh, I think that's yeah, indeed that's what's that's what's staggering to me is that I have worked in Afghanistan and um Egypt, Lebanon, and other areas of conflict on refugee rescue boats off the coast of Libya. But still, I the proportionality of children that I'm seeing that are that I've seen that are war wounded or that I have pronounced dead is indeed striking. And it is on a scale and severity and magnitude that I had not seen in other conflicts. Um, you know, we always hesitate to compare conflicts because every conflict deserves its own narrative. But what I can say that's different about this is that the proportional the proportionality of children that I was treating was much higher than I've seen in previous conflicts. The lack of supplies compared to what Gaza looked like prior to the war was significant. It had been a robust functioning uh, healthcare infrastructure with highly educated physicians and nurses, um, and the staffing tries, but without the supplies, they can't make it. Um, the other difference is the severity of the burns, particularly in children that I'm seeing um, that are really um, striking and grim. And nothing to treat them with. That's another thing you describe. There's no medication. Right. Well, we started with some morphine that was being dispensed and rationed out at the start of our two weeks. And by the end, there was none. And every day, things got more and more dire. Um, and I always like to think as a physician, maybe we can't do much, but hopefully we can treat pain, we can treat nausea, the basic things, pain, pain management might be a comfort measure. And by the end, we were even unable to do that. And it was a uh, Cool. Uh, honestly, some of the undertakings, that's what I saw and treating patients on the ground, um, patients dying on the ground because there are no more beds, no more structures. Um, right now, there is no death with dignity and, and you know, dying on the floor of a Gaza emergency room. 
Well, a colleague um, of yours just did an op-ed for the LA Times. He was just in Gaza and he described seeing children with wounds to their heads inflicted by, you know, snipers. So this suggests that there's a direct, deliberate targeting of children. Did you witness this at all? Did I personally did not witness that, no. I can't speak to that. And, um, yeah, so, I can't. I can't yeah. yeah, so of course, when Israeli forces attack these hospitals, they justify it on the grounds that these serve as Hamas headquarters, that the patients there are somehow being used as human shields, that there are tunnels under these hospitals where the Hamas um, people uh, congregate and operate from. Did you see anything like that while you were there? I personally did not bear witness to any militant activity in the hospitals, no. So... Sima, you have just come back from the United States where you met with some pretty high-ranking U.S. officials. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and why you, you felt compelled to do that? Uh, it's been a specific request from Palestinians, um, particularly around this conflict, is to bear witness. But then also with that witness is, comes the responsibility of elevating their stories to the halls of power and in, into the hands of decision-making um, persons and, and policy-making, uh, policy decision-makers. Um, and in terms of, you know, there were varied and responses and mixed responses, but they reacted as any human would in terms of the shock and horror of the stories that I relayed to them. And do you think that this is, I mean, <laughs> I saw that, you know, the New Yorker asked you a question about whether you felt you were making a difference or not uh, on the ground when you were there in Gaza. And you said that was a very nuanced question. I'll put that question to you in this context. Do you feel that talking to these people are these people who have the power to, to make decisions that can actually change things on the ground? And do you feel your um, testimony can help, has helped? I certainly hope so. I hope it makes an impact. And I, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't really believe in the system. And perhaps that's naive of me after all these years, perhaps I should be more cynical. But I do believe that there are good people trying to do good things and that it's really important to bear witness and testimony as we've seen from other conflicts, especially since there are no foreign journalists allowed into Gaza. Um, that shouldn't be the case. We have these valiant and colossally brave um, Palestinian journalists showing us on the ground what is happening and that really should be enough. Um, but the reality of the situation is that any set of eyes on the ground that can speak to what is happening, and especially I think a physician, who comes from a place of clinical duty to their patients um, has, you know, should use their voice in a case like this. And I certainly hope that it is impactful in some way. And if we don't speak up, um, then those people either get forgotten or their narratives are not uplifted and they deserve better than that. Yes. Uh, yes, that, that's absolutely true. But at the same time, of course, you expose yourself because we also know that when people do speak up, certainly journalists, they, they get targeted, as we've seen most recently with Louisa Lovelock of the Washington Post, um, who's been smeared uh, by uh, various Israeli organizations 
because precisely because she's been chronicling um, all these tragedies in in Gaza, do you do you fear that this could happen to you as well? Or have you already faced any kind of targeting because of the fact that you're going around talking about the horrors you witnessed? Um, well, I've been in and out of the West Bank for 10 years. I've been to Gaza twice before. Each time I've spoken about the various indignities that I have borne witness to. And each time I have received backlash, um, whether it's through internet or email or hate mail and so on. So um, I, you know, if you stick your neck up above the crowd, you, you kind of expect, uh, unfortunately, in this world, that people will come for it if they disagree with you. And so um, that, yes, that is part of, unfortunately, speaking out, um, and particularly in this conflict. Getting back to your feelings, I mean, how, how, how do you feel? Are you okay? I mean, this mentally must be so hard, particularly because you are a mom as well. You have a, a daughter, right? A young daughter. And I do, I do. Yes, um, y yes, and is what I would say. Yes, it's hard, and I'm very cognizant of the privilege that I have to leave Gaza by virtue only by chance of where I was born. It's not that I'm more deserving or anything. It's a, it's a complete luck of the draw, and I'm very cognizant that I spent a small amount of time there, and there are doctors and nurses and families and other people who are at unable to leave and unable to escape the absolute nightmare that they are enduring. So um, I'm full of gratitude when I came home to see my daughter. I, I had seen so many traumatic amputations that I just, you know, kissed her limbs. I still listen to her heartbeat and her breathe uh, as much as I can at night and uh, just take gratitude in that. Seema, thank you so very much for being with us here today. Are you planning to go back to Gaza? One little last question. I would love to. Um, the timing right now is not at this time, but hopefully sometime in the future, indeed, yes. A, a place I've, I've left a, a little bit of my heart there, so I have to come and get it back. Well, it's a huge heart and more power to you, Seema. Thank you. Thank you so much. And this brings us to the end of On the Middle East. Thank you for tuning in and goodbye.